Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. This week, we're talking about lessons, big, small, and in between. Inside the classroom, at least at the university level, there's a revolution taking place. It's not huge, it's not noisy, it's not violent. But students are telling professors they want to learn more, a lot more, about climate change. And not only about the science surrounding it, they want to learn about climate politics, history, arts, and more. Two teachers at the University of New Brunswick have taken up the challenge. They're shaping their lessons around what they believe students need to know and understand to live in a warming world. And on the West Coast, two other professors are using the craft of storytelling to give their students new ways to talk about climate in a way that will ensure people listen. After that, lessons from history that we can all benefit from. The world was told back then it was a threat. People were urged to pay attention to the science, change your ways, your behavior, in order to protect the future. And I'm not talking about today, I'm not really even talking about climate change. I'm revisiting the days decades ago when the ozone layer was thinning. But back then, the world did come together, the threat was met with solidarity and action, and there's now news that it was all worth it. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Okay, everybody, I, I think we can get started. Uh, welcome to the second lecture of Arts 1023, Arts First, Climate and the Environment. Uh, for those of you who weren't able to attend on Monday, I'm Dr. Heather Miller. I'm the instructor for the course. Today we're going to really start to... Heather Miller's class is just getting started at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton, and that, that's some sound that she shared with us. The climate and environment class she teaches will soon be mandatory for all art students there, and she believes that's a first for a Canadian university. We heard about it because her colleague Donald Wright reached out to tell us how the school is rethinking its approach to teaching climate change. Both Donald Wright and Heather Miller are political science professors at UNB, and they're with me now. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello from New Brunswick. <laughs> Donald, before we get to Heather's new class... You wrote to us to share how you've been working to include climate change in your political science classes. What, what was the, the light bulb moment that started you down this path? Yeah, that's such a really good question. About 10 years ago, a student approached me after they wrote the final exam. And as sometimes students do, they'll say, oh, thanks for the course, sir. I learned a lot. And the student said, yeah, thanks for the course, sir. But, you know, I wasn't really interested in a lot of your topics. I really didn't care about the governor general and the reserve powers of the crown uh, or the Senate, the longest running scandal in Canadian politics. He said, look, it's just not my world. What I'm worried about, what I think about is the environment and the climate. And afterwards, I thought, you know, he's right. So that summer, I went to the library. I checked out a ton of books. I subscribed to blogs. I subscribed to podcasts. 
And I began to teach myself climate change and the politics of climate change. And over the next couple of years, I would introduce a few units in each course in my introduction to Canadian politics. And after a few years, I said, you know what? I have a lot of material now. I think I will teach a standalone course. And so we went through the process of creating a new course, uh, an introductory course, The Politics of Climate Change. And it is my favorite course to teach. I absolutely love it. And have you had any students come up to you and say that kind of thing about what you're teaching now? Or is that a matter of history for you? No, if anything, they really are appreciative because they simply don't know a lot about climate change, what the UNFCCC is, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. So they're, I think, quite appreciative to have this information, these terms, these concepts that they can use to follow the conversation and to participate in the conversation. And that conversation is going to be their future. As I tell them at the start of every class, it doesn't matter what career path you choose, whether it's in teaching or medicine or law or public policy uh, or retail or restaurant work, you're going to have to be thinking about climate change because it's going to change everything we do going forward. Or journalism, I might add. <laughs> or journalism, you might add. That's right. Now, Heather, um, that, that was you, we heard, summoning the class to order uh, a few seconds earlier uh, in the program. Tell me how the first couple of days of, of teaching this new course went. Uh, it's going well. We're still in the early stages. So this course is a, a pilot course for a first year course that all art students have to take. And traditionally, we've had um, a, a di couple of different iterations of this course, which is really designed to teach basic research skills, uh, writing and communication, but to really have students kind of explore who they are as students and residents and members of the research community at UMB. And under the leadership of our dean, we've developed this new course with a twin focus. So in the first semester, they focus on justice. Uh, and then in the second semester, they're, they're focusing on issues of climate and the environment. And so the course is really designed to use environment as a jumping off point for students to be able to explore all the different ways that different disciplines within the arts can address the sort of core issues related to climate and the environment. So I'm pretty excited about it. Students seem enthusiastic so far. I asked them whether or not there was anyone who was sort of suspicious of the environment as a topic and nobody put up their hands. So that means they're <laughs> all pretty interested. That's great. Um, Donald, the, the, the university is, is piloting Heather's course this term, but in the next school year, it's going to become mandatory for all UNBR students. Why do you say climate change education should be mandatory? Uh, because it's going to drive our world going forward. All the decisions we make, uh, whether it's the most intimate and profound decision you can make on whether to have a child or not, or the decisions we make as a society on carbon pricing, on pipelines, on resources, major questions will be driven by climate change. And students have to know it. They have to understand it. They have to have the, the language and the conceptual tools to follow the debate, participate in the debate, uh, make sense of the debate. Otherwise, they'll be orphans just being buffeted around by extreme weather events and headlines that they don't fully understand. Now, Heather, when we talk about climate, we often talk about science. And, and that's true of this show as well. But 
but your class is called Climate and Environment in Humanities and Social Sciences. What role do you think the humanities and social sciences can play when it comes to grappling with finding solutions for climate change? That's a lovely question, and especially one that I'm quite passionate about. So my own research as a political scientist is on the politics of climate and energy in Canada, particularly focused on provincial politics. And often what I tell students is that for many of the issues that we're facing with regards to climate, the technical solutions are there. I mean, we know how to generate power from wind and solar. We know how to develop smart grids. We know some of the sort of hard and soft adaptation technology. What's much less clear is how to solve the problem of transitioning an entire society away from our dependence on carbon. And there, social science has the tools to understand some of the challenges that we face in terms of changing student or sorry, student behavior, uh, but also just changing our own behavior, but changing our political institutions, exploring the ways in which incumbent industries um, may resist those kinds of transitions. But also, and this is really apparent to me, you know, one of the challenges of this course for me is is to sort of move beyond my comfort zone as a social scientist and, and think back to my days as an English major to think about the ways in which fiction can help us imagine uh, different futures. So, for example, my introductory lecture today talked about the different discourses that we have in the world or different ways of knowing and thinking about the environment and the way that that informs the kinds of discussions we have as students, but also as both members of the research community, but also the broader community that students are involved in throughout the different aspects of their lives. There's one particular thing I'm interested in. The, the, the class description includes the line, how can we act collectively to make change? What kinds of collective actions are, are you going to look at? So we start off with water, and there we're going to be looking at the work of water protectors and in particular some of the sort of Indigenous leadership across Turtle Island, particularly with regards to Standing Rock. But then we're also going to be looking at the role of land defenders. And then more broadly, we're going to be looking at climate action, you know, both the nonviolent action, you know, civil action evident through the sort of massive climate strikes that we've seen over the last couple of years, but also some of the more sort of ground up work around Extinction Rebellion, for example. But within the course, uh, students are going to have to do a collective action project. And there we're asking them to think through in a sort of lived way, the challenges of working collectively on an issue. Students are, are going to have the option of, of writing a short play, of delivering a petition to their member of parliament or developing an op-ed for a newspaper article. So hopefully those are some of the ways in which the students have the opportunity to really think through why it is so hard to organize, but also some of the joys of working together collaboratively. That sounds like it's going to be interesting to see what you get out of that. And, and, and Donald, your, your course is on the politics of climate change, climate change and politics seem to intersect every day in Canada. I'm wondering what current examples you and your students are hashing out. We are looking certainly at carbon pricing in Canada, climate federalism, Ottawa versus the provinces, the politics around pipelines and the purchasing of pipelines, the expansion of pipelines. But just to pick up on something you were talking about earlier with Heather, 
this idea of collective action. That's one of the big themes of my course is that we do look at formal politics through the United Nations and, and then with uh, Ottawa and uh, the provinces or Washington and the states. So we look at formal politics, but we also look at climate politics from the bottom up when people organize and mobilize and push for changes. So we look at Extinction Rebellion, we look at Scientist Rebellion, we look at the Sunrise Movement. It's also so exciting. It's bottom-up, it's social movement. I'm wondering if either of you have, have, I mean, Heather, I know you've just begun this, but have either of you heard um, students coming up with any great solutions that you haven't heard anywhere else yet? Well, every now and then I do teach a lot of engineering students. (laughs) And of course, they're wonderful students to teach. Because, of course, they say climate change is just an engineering problem. We can engineer a way out of this. Uh, And they have all sorts of wacky ideas because they, (laughs) uh, well, you know, you've heard umbrellas in space. I would tell the students that I admire your passion, but I don't think it's simple as putting umbrellas in space, uh, that we need uh, a lot more everyday solutions. But still, I admire their excitement. I admire their passion. They are really turned on by this material. And Heather, it probably is too early in your course, but but I'm wondering if they haven't been giving you brilliant new ideas, what, what difference are you hoping the course makes for your students? So many of our students we do know are, are facing sort of high levels of challenges of anxiety. And a lot of that is generated by climate anxiety about the sort of concerns of, of just being feeling overwhelmed, you know, with regards to what the world is going to look like in 20 years. And so I'm hoping that the course will provide them with some of the tools to understand and break down uh, and and really sort of dig underneath all those different elements of climate, but also to develop some of the tools to work together to see sort of potential solutions. Definitely in some of the courses that we teach here on environmental politics, I've seen transformative movement from students coming in sort of feeling overwhelmed to finally being like oh well now I can break down and I can understand the different elements of politics I can understand why things are happening the way they are and that helps me consume and engage with media for example and try to actually understand make better sense of world events. And Donald, there, there are the climate change courses popping up at universities across Canada but I'm wondering what you would say to educators who might be looking at their own course offerings and wondering if climate teaching needs to be more prominent? Well, the short answer is yes, it does. But the longer answer is, if I can do it, anyone can do it. Look, climate politics is a long way from my area of expertise in very technical terms. I'm a historian. I write biographies of Canadian historians. But I developed this... uh, use a hip word, I developed this side hustle in climate (laughs) politics. And now I'm just so passionate about it. And it's so rewarding to teach. So if you're thinking, if there's a professor out there who's thinking about, well, maybe I should add some units, or maybe I should develop a standalone course, my advice is fire off an email to me, and we'll start a conversation. And I'll happily share my syllabi, my notes, my references, my resources with them. Heather Miller and Donald Wright, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As you heard, they're willing to offer advice to other educators. So if you want to connect with Donald Wright and Heather Miller, just go ahead and email us, earth at cbc.ca, and we'll pass your message along.
All right, so that's how two professors on the East Coast are taking climate education into the realms of the arts and politics. Here on the West Coast, two other professors are pushing climate education in another direction, into the world of storytelling. What on Earth story producer Danielle Piper attended a recent class to find out more. Hi, Danielle. Hey, Laura. You went back to school and you actually went to UBC a few years ago and you graduated from there. So you went back. (laughs) Yeah, but only for a couple of hours. (laughs) I felt like a student all over again. This class is held on the University of British Columbia campus here in Vancouver. I showed up on a sunny Monday afternoon and walked straight into a classroom with about nine students sitting in a large circle. Also in the circle are the two people teaching this class, Derek Gladwin, who is an assistant professor in language and literacy education, and Naoko Ellis, a professor in chemical engineering. All right, that's an unusual pairing to begin with. So tell me what exactly happens in a climate storytelling class. Well, this class is for any UBC student who is doing research related to the climate emergency. The one I attended had mostly students studying applied sciences or engineering, But I'm going to bet this curriculum was a little outside their usual studies. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) They started with some improv exercises where each student says one sentence. The next student has to continue the story with the words, yes, and. Here are Nako Ellis and Derek Gladwin Um, kicking things off. Once upon a time, there was a young girl named Sarah who found a bumblebee on an apple blossom. Yes, and Sarah had a mortal fear of bumblebees because she was allergic to them. The story goes on and on with twists and turns and and somehow zombies get involved. Okay. (laughs) The students are pretty nervous and honestly seem relieved when the improv is over. Well, I gotta say, that sounds different than your average engineering class. Actually, it sounds different than... I've pretty much any university class I've ever taken, but how does storytelling help the students connect to climate change solutions? Well, Nako Ellis echoed what the professors in New Brunswick you just spoke to said about the limits of scientific solutions when it comes to tackling the climate crisis. I've been involved with training the next generation of engineers who many of them think that technology is going to solve it all. And, um, you know, I'll pose the question around, well, if so, why aren't we seeing that happen in, you know, many aspects of this uh, society? And that is a very good question, because even if the scientific solutions are there, we know there's lots of other factors at play. Right. We just heard your last guest talk about how important politics are when it comes to climate solutions. But Derek Gladwin says storytelling can also play a part in making change. You know, because storytelling is in some ways a very subjective experience that we don't have the same kinds of hard evidence to support it. But what we do have is we can see how stories have historically influenced and changed um, behaviors across societies. And and the, the fact that we as people really have returned to storytelling you know, using narratives and metaphors uh, as ways to frame values has created that social awareness to make um, for allow people to make decisions and act. It's easier for people to get wrapped up in a story than wrapped up in a lecture or a speech about politics. And Derek Gladman isn't the only one who thinks this way. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has this communications handbook, and it pretty much says the same thing. 
According to this handbook, people respond better to stories than they do to facts and figures and graphs and data. They advise scientists to transform technical language into, you know, a compelling narrative. And that's why everyone from advertising companies to politicians use stories in their campaign when they're asking you to either buy a product or vote for their platform. That is, is such good advice. And I know that, that as a journalist, I do appreciate, especially scientists who can, who can take all of that really bulky, dense information and be able to deliver it in a way that's compelling and understandable. So did you hear any examples of this in the storytelling class? Absolutely. So as the class went on, each student had a chance to tell a personal story about climate change. I heard firsthand experiences of air pollution in Mongolia and what it felt like to witness a sea of red trees in British Columbia, the normal color gone, caused by the mountain pine beetle infestation. But the story that really struck me was shared by Sajan Pokhrel. He's an international student and doctoral candidate in engineering at UBC. I'm from Nepal. I was born in a rural like rural hilly region in Nepal. There was no infrastructure of transportation, communication, power, and energy, and so on. For example, my family's only source of cooking energy was firewood. So I lost my grandmother when I was six years of age. And later, when I grew older, I came to know that the cause of her death was asthma. And the cause of asthma was the prolonged firewood cooking, which she did for like throughout her life. Nearly three quarters of households in Nepal rely on firewood for cooking. Cooking with wood comes with a bunch of increased respiratory risks, including asthma. All right. So he has a personal story to tell. Did, did it affect him? Did it make him make changes? He sought out solutions. This led him to pursue a career in renewable, clean energy, not just to save the planet, but to save lives. So I think the, the main reason I even came to this field was if I could make the difference in any single people, any single like grandmother who are still burning the firewood, for example, for cooking, and who has been the victim diseases like asthma because of the pollution from those kind of activities. That is my main motivation. All right. Well, right there, that is a pretty good example of how a personal story leads to change. And we've often heard from our guests about, about these exact kind of things, these motivations. So now he is seeking solutions through his career as an engineer. But does he also think that storytelling in and of itself can be a solution? Yes. He told me that he thinks storytelling is one of the best ways to convince people to take action. Once you tell the story, they basically feel it, right? So whenever people feel that, it's very difficult for them to forget what they feel. I hope that people get motivated to work on that, how to solve this problem uh, anywhere in the world, not only in like North America, not only in Europe, but to all parts of the world. And previous students from this class are using storytelling in their own careers. I've spoken to former students who are now teaching classes at UBC, energy specialists at consulting firms, and elementary and secondary school teachers using it in literature and drama classes. All of them are using climate storytelling in the workplace. And here you are using storytelling to bring this to us. I'd invite anybody with a, a good story to tell us about their own experience, uh, something that happened that motivated them um, to make a difference when it comes to climate to, to reach out to us our, our email is earth at cbc.ca let us know but daniel piper thank you for sharing this story about the class thank you laura
Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Now here's a brief rundown of some of this week's notable news in climate. The rain has poured down on California, as we know, and it's coming amid new warnings that a warmer planet must be a planet prepared for climate-related disaster. 2022 was the fifth warmest year on record, according to the Climate Service Copernicus. Agencies also report that the last eight years have been the warmest on record. There's a new person presiding over the body that meets yearly to try to coordinate a global response to the climate crisis. And this appointment isn't being welcomed by many who are urging more action. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber heads one of the world's biggest oil companies, and he's also a minister in the government hosting the next meeting, the United Arab Emirates. There are already demands that he step down from the company if he wants to head up the COP28 gathering. And we have one more story for you, and it's a good news story. Some of you may remember the panic over the Earth's ozone layer. It protects us from cancer-causing UV radiation. Chemicals were eating away at the layer, creating a hole over the Antarctic. Just days ago, groups including the United Nations and NASA published a big update on the health of the ozone layer. The prognosis? Ozone is healing, and over the coming decades, it should return to how it was in 1980. That's before the ozone hole appeared. It's on the mend now thanks to the success of an international agreement signed in Montreal in September of 1987. Nations began phasing out chemicals that were found in seemingly innocuous items like hairspray and deodorant because of the damage they were causing. The update is actually good news for the climate, too. The UN estimates that as much as one and a half degrees of warming will be avoided by the end of the century. In light of the good news from the UN about the ozone layer healing, we're looking back to see how that international agreement came to be. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel first brought us this documentary in September to mark the 35th anniversary of the Montreal Protocol. When I started researching this story, one thing kept coming up in conversation. Ozone? It's personal. What I mean is, the risks, quite literally, have an impact on individuals. UV exposure causing skin cancer. But it was also personal in the action people took. Here's how it all started for Cora Young. So in 1989, I was, I was eight years old, and um, I was really into reading and into doing crafts and hiking. I loved the environment, you know, being outside, but activism was sort of outside of my, my realm until I had this amazing teacher in grade three, Mrs. Shields. Young was attending school in Etobicoke. That's now part of the city of Toronto. When I got there in grade three, I was new to the school, so I didn't have um, a lot of friends at that time. And so this, this teacher that I had was really influential because of that. 
our class had, you know, 25 kids and we had an area where we would we would sit and listen to her talk and she'd actually put in some like old claw-footed bathtubs with cushions in them. Um, so we would fight over who got to sit in those. And maybe Cora Young was sitting in one of those clawfoot bathtubs, listening intently, she's new to the school, when the course of her future would change, all because of Mrs. Shields. She cared a lot about environmental issues, and she shared that enthusiasm with us. So one of the things that she taught us about was the damage to the stratospheric ozone layer that was being caused by pollution. And what we could do, even as you know, eight-year-old kids, to, to prevent that. They learned about the things that contained chemicals that were eating away at the Earth's protective ozone layer. And the most notable for eight-year-old Cora Young, polystyrene foam, which you probably know as styrofoam. At the time, it was being used as clamshell packaging for fast food hamburgers. And so I went home and told my parents we were no longer allowed to eat at fast food restaurants that, that use the styrofoam as a, you know, a crusader of <laughs> we have to not eat at, at fast food restaurants. And I think my parents were, were quite happy um, about that development. Yeah, well, more of a sacrifice for her and her little sister, of course, than her parents. Young was boycotting this packaging over concerns about CFCs. And you're going to hear that term, CFC, or chlorofluorocarbon, a lot. Those were the chemicals causing ozone destruction, and we'll get into that in more detail. But first, Young and her classmates were not alone. Can I have eight hamburgers on a napkin, please? Yeah. Oh, no. Uh-oh. We're trying to get McDonald's to gradually stop using things, and we'll gradually stop doing the things that we're doing. That's part of a 1989 story from CBC's The National about similar boycotts from children. For Young, this teacher really inspired her to action, not just to boycott her favorite hamburgers, but to dedicate her life to this issue. She's now a professor of atmospheric chemistry at York University in Toronto. In retrospect, I realize it must have been more impactful for me, of course, because of how it influenced my life. But certainly all the kids in the class were enthusiastic about, you know, making an impact themselves. And that's what this story is all about action, from individuals to industry and government. People boycotted McDonald's to make them get rid of the styrofoam clamshells that they used to put on Big Macs and other burgers. This is Susan Solomon. And I'm a professor in the Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences Department at MIT. In the mid to late 1980s, Susan Solomon was doing science that would help paint a picture of what was causing the hole to form in the ozone layer and what had to be done about it. Scientists, individuals and activists, politicians and industry all came together to fix this problem. In 1987, they signed a binding agreement that would eventually phase out CFCs and replace them. It was called the Montreal Protocol. Diplomats from around the world have reached a historic agreement to save the Earth's ozone layer. That's the natural filter high above the Earth that screens out dangerous radiation from the sun. Representatives from more than 40 countries meeting in Montreal worked out a tentative deal yesterday to reduce the chemicals that destroy the ozone shield. Corey Young. So the Montreal Protocol is widely regarded as one of the most successful international agreements ever. Um, it was the very first agreement that was universally ratified by all countries that are members of the United Nations. And I think that that reputation is 
well-deserved. It has been extremely successful um, and it's challenging to get people in the world to agree on anything. Um, So to have us all agree on repairing damage to our environment and how to actually go about that is, is really, really powerful. Really, really powerful, says Young. And she's right. Today, studies show the ozone layer is recovering. And as a byproduct of moving away from some chemicals, we've also made climate gains. But the story of how that happened took a mix of science, policy, communication, and just individual action. Before Susan Solomon started working on ozone, she was studying chemistry as a student. And then when I got ready to go to graduate school, I, I found out there was such a thing as atmospheric chemistry. And I thought, wow, you know, chemistry on a planet instead of in a test tube. So I decided that was what I was going to do. And her timing was good. In 1974, two scientists, Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina, published a paper. In it, they argued that chemicals from aerosols would make it to the stratosphere and eat away at ozone. Here's Roland and Molina that same year. In an interview with host Alan Maitland for CBC's As It Happens. It's essential to have ozone in the atmosphere to shield us from the very harmful ultraviolet radiation. The prediction that we are making is that if we go on using these materials at the same rate that we are now, that this effect will become noticeable within 10 or 20 years and then would remain that way for most of the 21st century. Now, is anybody listening to your alarm? Oh, it's very slow. It takes a while for people to become convinced that the science behind it is really serious. In the 1970s, there was no ozone hole yet. But scientists Roland and Molina were trying to raise awareness of the issue. And they would both go on to eventually win a Nobel Prize for that work in 1995. Roland died in 2012, Molina in 2020. Before there was any international agreement, things were starting to happen in the U.S. Advocacy from Molina and Roland, as well as environmental groups, had sparked action. There was a very simple thing you could do that would help a lot. And that was to literally go to your medicine cabinet, take out the spray underarm deodorant and put in a roll-on instead, you know. I mean, how hard is that? You know, I can remember get on the stick to save the ozone layer. Hairspray, yeah, but, you know, that's not so hard either. By 1975, there was already movement to ditch ozone-depleting chemicals from aerosols. The aerosol spray can scare is on the move again with the setting up of a special scientific committee for the United States National Academy of Sciences to study the problem and the frightening ramifications to human life. A United States government task force has recommended banning the use of fluorocarbon aerosol sprays. This week, in full-page ads in major Canadian papers, the Johnson's Wax Company announced it was no longer going to market fluorocarbon products. It wasn't just the United States. Countries were starting to get together to talk about the issue and how to fix it. But by the mid-1980s, that threat that Roland and Molina had predicted, it was suddenly here. And then, boom, along comes the Antarctic ozone hole. Diplomats from around the world were already meeting in 1985 in Vienna to discuss ozone. But the discovery that there was a hole in the Antarctic ozone layer was not enough to prompt firm international action yet. There was still uncertainty about precisely what was happening in the stratosphere to cause the problem. Chlorine, yes, but they needed more information. 
Now, the diplomats didn't put all their eggs in that basket. They were afraid it would turn out that there was some natural cause or something else for the ozone hole. So initially, they uh, were a little skittish about it, which is absolutely appropriate, in my opinion, when it comes to something like that. Susan Solomon was looking at a few ideas that were floating around. And so there were three theories, and Susan played a key role in coming up with the correct theory. Bob Watson is a retired professor, and he co-chaired some of the International Committees on Ozone, as well as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So those other theories he's referring to are gas from volcanic eruptions, some super complicated dynamics in the atmosphere, and chlorine from chemicals we humans were making and using, which would rise up into the stratosphere, where a reaction would happen with UV light, breaking the compounds down in those chemicals and releasing products that were depleting ozone. Susan Solomon thought that something was happening high up in the stratosphere in the Antarctic, chlorine from CFCs reacting on a surface. I I thought maybe what was happening was unusual surface chemistry on the polar stratospheric clouds that form at the extreme cold temperatures of the Antarctic. So Antarctic really is the coldest place on Earth. And because it's so cold, you get clouds not only in the lower atmosphere, but all the way up into the stratosphere where the air is actually extremely dry and normally there aren't any clouds. So I thought that might be the the explanation In 1986, Solomon got the chance to test her theory. She was 30 years old and working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She traveled to the Antarctic to lead a team of researchers to physically measure how much ozone was in the stratosphere and to test for the molecules they hypothesized were the culprits. And it was kind of exciting standing out on the roof in minus 40, you know, with the wind blowing, collecting your moonbeams. One of the molecules was easier to measure in moonlight. I mean, that was real science, and I felt so exhilarated and you know, excited by the whole thing. They were taking measurements of those chemicals, as well as readings of how much ozone was present and how far up into the stratosphere. So picture this. A normal graph of ozone concentration looked like a person's nose in profile. So... When we got down there in August, it had a normal nose. But then something was changing to that face. By the time we got to the middle of September, it was like, you know, a bulldog bit off somebody's nose. I mean, there was just this huge piece of the nose that was missing. It transfigured the face of Antarctic ozone. Her and her team's observations confirmed her theory. CFCs that were used in some aerosols, polystyrene foam, refrigerators, and air conditioners were causing the hole to form in the stratosphere above the Antarctic. So Solomon unlocked the mystery of how this was happening. It was a chemical reaction on those icy stratospheric clouds. And this might seem like a small detail, but for the scientific community, it was a bit controversial. Scientists are a little bit like cats. They like to have the furniture where they are used to having it. The idea that reactions could happen on surfaces in the stratosphere was, it was exactly the opposite of what everyone had thought for decades. And I can remember talking about it in a scientific meeting. I was 30 years, 29, I think, at that time. And people laughed. Back in those days, women had to be tough anyway, and they still do if they're going to be in science. 
And, uh, you know, I just soldiered on. I didn't, I didn't let it worry me because I just was pretty confident that we had the right answer, and it turned out we did. There was some pushback against what scientists like Solomon were learning about ozone damage. Sound familiar to you? It was a bit of foreshadowing to what we would see unfold with climate science. But despite opposition, leaders from around the world were slated to gather in Montreal in 1987 to tackle this problem. And the data that Solomon and her team had gathered helped push them towards action. Meanwhile, Bob Watson was preparing more tests in Chile to follow up on what Solomon and her team had found. He was working for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab at the time. He and his team wanted to see if Solomon's observations held up. They took measurements by aircraft, flight after flight. It was really clear after four, five, or six that this chlorine theory was indeed correct. In other words, it's we humans were destroying the ozone layer. While the chemistry was complex, literally and figuratively well above our heads, the images of what was happening to the world's sunblock, the ozone layer, were simple to understand. On television, it was shown, look at the ozone hole, and they used beautiful imagery. When you watched the evening news, these incredible images of the ozone hole forming, I mean, it was scary. It looks like the master that ate Manhattan, you know, and there it is. It's like, whoa. It clearly had a big impact on people and on the governments. Bob Watson knew that science alone would not solve the issue. Uh, There's no point having all this good science information if you can't explain it to the public and if you can't explain it to politicians and, equally important, convince the private sector they've got a problem. And so it's very important to me to be able to explain it to the media, explain it to Congress, explain it to all governments of the world when they met in the negotiations. The Montreal Protocol was first signed by a group of countries in 1987. Broadly speaking, the idea was to phase out CFCs. However, there was an obvious equity issue. There were some countries, wealthier countries, who were mostly responsible for causing the issue in the first place. So there had to be something in place to make sure that the countries that didn't cause the problem, developing countries with less money, weren't on the hook for paying for it. As the Montreal Protocol developed, they began to see, hey, you know, we stand to be exploited again, the way we've been exploited by the developed countries so many times, because maybe these substitutes are going to be more expensive. And so we're going to have to pay to fix the problem that they created. And, you know, we're going to need refrigerators and air conditioners and things like that, too, for the health of our people. A fund was created to help foot the bill of replacement chemicals in developing countries. But if the refrigerators cost more because of the protocol than they would have cost, it pays the difference. And that was a very important aspect of this. There's another parallel to climate change here. Right now, there are international conversations about what the big emitters in the global north owe to countries in the global south, countries that are feeling the worst impacts of global warming. As for the Montreal Protocol, it wasn't until 1990 that a plan to phase out CFCs for replacements was laid out. That was part of the design of the protocol, annual meetings that took in new information, both scientific and technical, and a plan that would keep evolving in response to those findings. 
they invited the industry people to be involved. That was the, the genius, I think, of the Montreal Protocol. And the industry was sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place in a way. I mean, if they didn't get involved, things would be thrust upon them. If they did get involved, they could perhaps influence some of the choices that were made about how much to cut, how soon, which molecules, etc., etc. And they did. Some replacements already existed. And finding new ones? They're chemists. They make molecules. They had a relatively small investment in continuing to make the same thing they were making. If they could make something else, you know, I guess that wasn't a huge problem for them, right? I mean, they're constantly making new molecules. They love to make new molecules. They're, they're geeks, you know? There was some resistance, but like it or not, it was clear to chemical companies they would need to switch. And if they got on board, they could be involved in the conversations. Bob Watson. You need, you need the private sector to be on board. And to be honest, the private sector was probably more on board on the ozone issue than the climate issue. Now, comparing climate action to the story of ozone does have some limitations. One difference is scale. The ozone issue really involved a small subset of industry and just some of the chemicals that companies were making. But Susan Solomon points out for climate change. The companies that produce fossil fuels have massive reasons to stand pat. They own mineral resources that are worth trillions of dollars. And while fossil fuels are the main cause of climate change, there are other industries as well. Then there's the question of how do you get countries around the world to actually agree to something and to stick to their promises? Bob Watson says we can learn some lessons from the Montreal Protocol. The Montreal Protocol is legally binding with very explicit goals. You know, you have to reduce this gas by so much in so many years. Where the protocol sets the rules about reductions, it's a bit different than the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. That agreement leaves those decisions up to individual countries. They're called nationally determined contributions. Each country gets to say what reductions in CO2 emissions it wants to pledge, and on what timeline. If you look at the Montreal Protocol, it looks much tougher than the pledges under the Paris Agreement. But the success of Paris was that it applies to everybody. If he had it his way, the Paris Agreement might look a little different. So when they came to the Paris Agreement, if you would have asked me what would I want, I would have wanted the same as the Montreal Protocol. Legally binding targets on every country of the world with differentiated responsibilities. What I mean by that is industrialized countries should have more obligations, more stringent and quicker. There was zero chance, and I mean zero chance, it could ever have been negotiated. Susan Solomon says three key components allowed the world to band together to help heal the ozone layer. I talk about three Ps as being fundamental to solving an environmental problem. It needs to be personal, perceptible, and you need to have practical solutions. Those are fundamental. Now, when those conditions are met, then you'll have citizen engagement. 
Those conditions are now starting to emerge for climate, she says. More people on the planet than ever before are experiencing it in very perceptible ways. And it's affecting us personally. And like Solomon says, there are now practical solutions. For example, according to the International Energy Agency, in most cases, it's actually cheaper now to invest in onshore wind or solar than it is to make new fossil fuel power plants. But not only does the Montreal Protocol hold lessons for today as the world confronts the damage that fossil fuels have caused to the climate, the protocol itself has actually helped us emit fewer greenhouse gases in the first place. Cora Young. But it turns out that the CFCs, those that are responsible for stratospheric ozone depletion, are also extremely potent greenhouse gases. So one kilogram of a CFC is equivalent to, in terms of global warming potential, to thousands of kilograms of CO2. Young gave me an example of what this savings looks like. When you use a coolant in a car air conditioner that does not turn into a greenhouse gas, that's like taking two cars off the road for a year in terms of CO2 emissions. Now imagine that for every car on the road. And Young says it adds up. There are estimates of the world avoided uh, by the Montreal Protocol. And um, to date, the, the Montreal Protocol is thought to have averted at least 0.5 degrees Celsius of warming. And that effect will continue, continue on into the future, ultimately preventing multiple degrees of, of warming of our planet. When you consider that every fraction of a degree of warming matters, that the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change agreed keeping warming to 1.5 degrees is crucial to avoid irreversible changes and ecosystem loss. Half a degree averted? It's huge. And it's a sign that the protocol is working how it was designed to taking in new science, like climate science, and adjusting policy to evidence. And the science is not over. Young dedicates her research to tracking those chemical replacements and their impacts on the environment. Yeah, it, is, it does feel like it's kind of like whack-a-mole, right? Where you, you discover a new problem every time you put a different replacement chemical out there. And so I think we have to be really strategic in um, the design of chemicals that we use because many, we do have quite a lot of information as scientists and we can do quite good predictions. So if we can avoid chemicals that are very persistent, then that can be uh, a major way to get out of this cycle. The next phase may be getting rid of what are called forever chemicals, which you might be familiar with from products like nonstick pans. And although that journey is far from over, it's Young's turn now as a professor to inspire new generations of students with the successes of the Montreal Protocol. Most of my students have never heard of it. They find it very interesting to, to learn that there, is, there has been such success um, in protecting the environment. And it, it tends to make them, I think, more optimistic that we could do better for other environmental issues going forward. The fact that we've been so successful in the past. For What on Earth, I'm Molly Siegel. Well, 
Well, it is really fascinating to hear people talk about what happened all those years ago and the people who were involved in creating and agreeing to the Montreal Protocol must be so pleased hearing the news that it's not only half a degree that has been saved, it's up to one and a half degrees of global warming that that appears to be on track for being saved by the repairing the ozone layer. It does seem to be reason for optimism and reason to keep going forward to try to find agreement to challenge the climate crisis. On next week's program, we're going to take you out on the water, Trinity Bay to be exact, off the coast of Newfoundland. The North Atlantic Ocean plays a crucial role in absorbing carbon from the atmosphere, but scientists say we don't know enough about the process or how it might be changing. Some are exploring new ways to gather data on ocean carbon. CBC producer Lindsay Bird tagged along on one such experiment. She watched as a team pulled an underwater probe named Migaloo out of the ocean. Is that heavy to pull up? The way it is, it's clumsy, right? We've got, we've got those legs on it. It's job to get in over the gunnel there. So Doug and Nikolai got it out over the gunnels here, uh, and the second that this glider, Migaloo, was out of the water, Nikolai was right there checking all over it really carefully, basically because Migaloo was equipped with this sort of like a little backpack strapped to it that held some pretty special scientific equipment. So yeah, this is the uh, pH sensor right there that the whole fuss is about. This pH sensor measures acidity in the water. You know, that's that's one way to understand how much carbon is in the water. Carbon makes seawater more acidic, therefore changing the pH. And this was the sensor's first test out in the ocean. Making it back to the boat intact was the first milestone in this year-long mission that everyone on board the boat calls ACOP. That stands for Atlantic Carbon Observatory Pilot Program. Now, you may have caught Lindsay there calling it a glider. It caught me off guard, too, but she'll explain why it's called a glider and what it's doing and all about the Migaloo experiment and the global effort to learn more about ocean carbon on next week's program. And that's all for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Kiernan Green, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.